today and for the next two weeks, I'll be here this weekend, next week, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Haggai. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn there, the book of Haggai. It's near the end of the Old Testament, if you aren't sure where it is, near the end of the Old Testament between Sephaniah and Zechariah. Uh, but before we get into looking at uh, the Word, just a little background I think would be helpful because sometimes when we look at some of these Old Testament prophets, we aren't really sure what's going on here. It doesn't, if we read it without understanding some of the historical context or even geographical context, it's hard to really get an idea of what's happening. So basically a little background, uh, the, the, the Israelites were in the promised land for a long time with uh, King David at the high point and then King Solomon and then going through their history it kind of started going downhill from there the kings got worse and worse the people started or stopped repenting of their sins uh they they were kind of forgetting about god and god had said to them at when he made a covenant with them through moses at mount sinai years earlier that if you obey the covenant i make with you you'll stay in the land and if you disobey the covenant i make with you you will be taken out of the land and so this happens after they had disobeyed and disobeyed, the Lord sent the Babylonians, the wicked Babylonians. And if you're good Israelites back then, you would be going, ooh, the Babylonians. Yes, the Babylonians came in and they took them away and they destroyed the temple. They destroyed the city walls. Jerusalem's not where you want to stay. So you go with the Babylonians back to Babylon and just for a little distance purpose, so you kind of get an idea, you would have had to walk. That's like, that's like walking from here to Calgary. So you imagine uh, the wicked king, Johnny Gaudreau, from Calgary comes... No hockey fans in here? Okay. The wicked king, Johnny Gaudreau, from Calgary, comes to Squamish, says, you guys have to come all the way to Calgary, and I have to cheer for the flames. And you're like, well, at least they win. Right? <laughs> at least they win. <laughs> so... But that's what it would have been like. You have to go into a uh, foreign land, and you walk all of that way, and now... You can't worship your God there anymore. You don't feel like you can because there's no temple and there's all these other pagan gods around and you're not sure what to make of things. And so there they are in captivity in Babylon. But while they're there, uh, in 539 BC, Cyrus the king comes, comes and takes over and he decrees that all the peoples in captivity, so not just the Jews, but all the peoples in captivity can go back to their lands and they can rebuild their temples, they can rebuild their cities. And so, yeah, the Israelites are happy. They're able to go back to Jerusalem and start working. And so if you read the book of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, you read about this process that they go through starting to rebuild the temple and they lay a foundation. In 536, they lay a foundation for the temple, but they face a lot of opposition. So they abandon the project. So you have all of these Jews who were away and crying, by the rivers of Babylon when we sat down, oh, we wept and we remembered Zion. When they were in Babylon, they're crying that, and then they go back, and now they're supposed to rebuild the temple, and they kind of abandon it when some opposition comes. And they work on their own houses instead. And that's the context of where we're sitting today as Haggai prophesies. So when we look at this book, I think we're going to see a main point, at least for today's sermon, we're going to see a main point that says God's presence leads us from ruin 
to peace. God's presence leads us from ruin to peace. And there's three points if you're note takers. These are your three points. Number one, our ruinous priorities. Number two, God's motivating presence. And number three, a future glorious peace. So our ruinous priorities, God's motivating presence, and a future glorious peace. So starting, Haggai, chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And many of you are going, you've lost me already. Right? You see all of these names that are very unfamiliar to us and they make no sense because we don't name people names like Shealtiel. Nobody, I doubt there's a child in this church named Shealtiel. Am I right? Right. So Haggai basically though, he's just letting, us, letting his audience know. So those who at that time were going to read his prophecy and for future generations, including us, what the situation is. He's given us some context. So he's letting us know who's there. He's letting us know the situation he is in. So number one, it was the first day of the month, which would have been a new moon festival. It's a time for celebration because new moon festivals would be a public day of worship. Okay? Sixth month, he says. And that would have been much, or that would have been after most of their harvest would have been brought in. So you've got post-harvest, New moon festival, you've got Zerubbabel, the governor there. Whoa, there's a big deal because Zerubbabel is the blood relative, the descendant of King David. And God made a promise to King David that David would always have one of his children on the throne, but right now there was no Israelite throne, but Zerubbabel, there he is. He's waiting. And Joshua, the high priest, was there, and Joshua was the descendant of Aaron, the first priest for Israel coming out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness. Aaron was the guy. So they're looking and they're going, ooh, the right people are in place. It's a good time of year. The harvest is in. This should have been a time for celebration. It would be like Canada Day with Justin Trudeau and Nickelback. (laughs) Except better. But it should have been a time for celebration. But verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Doesn't sound so celebratory, does it? A little bit ominous. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Remember, the foundation had been laid 15 years earlier, but that project was abandoned. Have you ever walked past an abandoned building project? I remember when I used to work in Vancouver, I used to work for TELUS, and in Vancouver, I would walk down the street. uh, They did a lot of business work, so I was down Georgia a lot, and, and on this one property there, there was this abandoned building project. I think it's where the Trump Tower is now. I think that was the same location. But there was just concrete, rebar, kind of some of those rent offenses around it so nobody would go in, and yet 
You could see all the garbage from squatters who had been in there, weeds. It was a dump. It was a dump. And that's what abandoned building projects look like. Except this, in Haggai, this is the house of God. The temple of the Lord. How could you let that turn into a dump? God's asking. So what gets lost in us over 2,500 years later and over 6,500 miles away from Jerusalem is that the temple of your God back then, that was the centerpiece of your culture. That was what said who you were as a nation. What your temple looked like. And so in the ancient Near East, the temple being the center point of culture, when people, the surrounding peoples would have looked at Jerusalem and they would have seen this foundation started and in ruins, they'd be like, some God you have. Some God you have. What kind of God lets his house look like that? Please. God was being mocked. And it was the Israelites' priorities that had brought it to ruin. Continuing verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. God's saying, guys, you're hungry? Yeah. You're thirsty? You're cold? All the work you're doing doesn't seem to be amounting to anything? Look at your priorities. Look at your priorities. You're putting all your efforts into your own house, into your own little kingdoms, into your own individual little temporary kingdoms. That's where you're putting your efforts, not into the eternal, permanent kingdom of, of God. Do you really think that's going to go well? And we've seen this play out in real life, right? I remember a time when uh, we just had two kids and our oldest was two years old. And our um, number two, Mary-Kate, she was just a baby and Carla decided to do an outing with them. So we were living in Squamish at the time and she decided, oh, we're going to go down to Park Royal with, uh, or I'm going to go down to Park Royal with these two. I was at work. So she takes them, drives down to Park Royal. And she gets down to the mall, and they're walking through, and we have a stroller, and, and Isabel's able to stand on the back of the stroller and have a little snack, eat some fishy crackers or whatever she's eating. 
and she's all having fun, and Mary-Kate, she's cool, and, and the stroller, as long as she's fed and keeps moving, she's good. So they're walking through the mall, looking at this and that. They get into the bay, and they see the toys, and Isabel enjoys the toys, but Carla's like, hey, Izzy, we got to keep moving. And instead of Isabel going, okay, Mom, or even having a slight disagreement, she throws herself on the ground, starts flailing, arms flailing, screaming, ah, no, 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 blah, 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 blah. Well, how's this going to go? Well, Carla picks her up under one arm, still flailing, pushes the stroller, goes all the way through the bay, walking past other pregnant ladies who are looking at her going, what have I gotten into? <laughs> but Isabel's situation here, she's looking at her own little kingdom. She's, as a little kid, going, all that matters is what I want, and I don't care what mom wants. I don't care what the sovereign over me wants. No, I want to keep playing here, and I want to stay in the toys, and I'm going to freak out until I get my way. But it didn't go well. That was the end of the trip. Time to go home. Trip's over. Or if you look on a bigger scale, you can think about what used to be Mars Hill Church in Seattle. Their pastor, Mark Driscoll, had planted the church. And it had grown over a number of years to multiple campuses over a number of different states. And then all of a sudden, back in... Around 2012, there were rumblings of issues and other pastors who had worked with him and other elders were starting to talk about his ego and his arrogance and his, his absolute need for control. And come the end of it, it all falls apart. This church that had over 20,000 people across multiple campuses was now disintegrated. Nothing. Thousands of people who had come to Christ there, now wondering, was that all real? Pastors who left the ministry because of it. Just because of one man's arrogance. So you think about that man and his arrogance. Whose kingdom was he building? Was he working on God's house? Well, it looked like it. But when it all comes down, his heart, his heart was after his own kingdom. Pastors have this issue too. Um, as Mark Driscoll was a pastor, but even myself, I can say, going through my own ministry over the last four years, the amount of times that I've been more worried about what I look like in other people's eyes than worrying about what I look like in God's eyes, worrying about the approval of the senior pastor, or the approval of the elders, or the approval of the congregation. That little kingdom that I want to build, those distractions can come in very quickly. They can come in very quickly. And we have to remember to repent of those and to go back and remember who our first love is. So whose kingdom are you guys building? Whose house is your priority? in your lives here in Squamish. It may seem like focusing on the priorities of renting your house or cleaning up your backyard or working super long hours so you can get ahead in your career. It may seem like these things are ultimate right now in the worship of God. Yeah. It's not really at the top. 
Like, oh, I can do that later. That can wait. Oh, I can serve at the church another time. This season, it's just not working. Whose kingdom are you working on? But listen, when your property value plummets, or your company downsizes and lays you off, or your wife catches you watching something online that you shouldn't be watching, all these little things we do to kind of feel like we're the king of our own world, the king of our own little castle, when those things come crashing down, where are you going to turn? Listen to Jesus' words here from Matthew 6. Starting at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy and your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So when we're trying to work on our own little kingdom, we're trying to be our own master, or when we're trying to serve that retirement plan, we're looking at money as the master, we're trying to have this own little kingdom that can all of a sudden just poof, be gone. So who are you serving? Which kingdom are you building? God's kingdom, the health of his house, and in our day, that's not a temple structure that's at the centerpiece of the city. No, that today the temple is here. The body of Christ. The temple is the body of Christ. And we need to be working to build this temple, to build this body of Christ, both individually in our own lives, being our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, but also here as a combined community of Christ. What are we doing what can we do? So don't neglect your own personal holiness, but also don't neglect the church. Give, serve, pray, teach. Love each other. Be patient with each other. Forgive each other. Be kind and good to each other. And let this goodness, this fruit of the Spirit that can be within you, let this show to the community around you. Let this love show. Let them see how you serve your people. Because when they see that, when the surrounding peoples of Squamish want to come and mock God, and then they look and they see how much you love each other and how you serve each other, and when they come in these doors maybe wondering what's going on on a Sunday morning, and they see all these people in such good community loving and serving each other and praying together, they're going to go, wow, those people are different. And God will be glorified. He won't be mocked. God will be glorified in that. But to do that, we need to change our priorities. And in order to change our priorities, we need to be motivated. So part, point two, God's motivating presence. 
Continuing in verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of, the, of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So this is the biblical pattern of change in people's lives. It's not just hear and obey, but it's hear, be stirred up, and obey. God works in you. He doesn't just speak, but he acts. He motivates. He moves on us. He's not a motivational speaker like Tony Robbins on TV or something like this. No, he actually moves and makes an effect on your life so that you will obey. We see this through parts of the Old Testament and all through the scriptures. But in the book of Judges, the Spirit of God clothes Gideon before he goes to work for the Lord. The Spirit of God stirs and rushes upon Jephthah before he becomes and judges Israel. In 1 Samuel, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon both King Saul and King David at different times before they need to act in the Lord's service. And then the New Testament, we see this repeatedly, especially the book of Acts. In Acts 2, the disciples waiting in the upper room are filled with the Holy Spirit, and then Peter preaches at Pentecost, and over 3,000 people are saved. In Acts 9, the Apostle Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit after Ananias lays hands on him, and then Paul goes and becomes the greatest church planter missionary in ancient Europe. In Acts 10, the Gentiles at Cornelius' house Hear Peter preach, and then the Holy Spirit falls on all who hear the word. And they worship him. God has a motivating presence. But some of you, of you are here, and you're thinking about your life, and you're thinking about the different ways that you struggle, and you're going, but <laughs> I'm weak. How am I supposed to do that? Yes, I know that I'm saved, and I know the Holy Spirit is with me, but man, I just don't feel it. And I get that. You go through seasons like that. You go through seasons like that, but, but God tells us in his word, Romans 8, 26, he says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God the Holy Spirit is an active motivator in our lives, friends. He convicts us of sin. He encourages us. He equips us with gifts. He intercedes for us and he leads us to obey. So sometimes in my life, um, 
I wonder why I'm not hearing him, so to speak. And I don't mean audibly. I mean just why don't I feel his leading? Why am I not, why am I not uh, feeling that urge or that, that sense to go and obey? Sometimes he seems silent, but normally at that point, when I'm feeling like that, I make sure I stop and think and I ask myself, how much time have I actually been availing myself to him or to the means that he gives for me to commune with him? How much time have I been spending in scripture? How much time have I been spending in prayer? How much time have I been spending actually in Christian community around me? And then usually I find my answer because it's not much. So if we don't spend time with God or avail ourselves to the means by which he has revealed himself to us, how do we expect to hear from him? When we've let all the other spirits of the world, all the other distractions around us take our time, we get up in the morning and we grab our phone and we check the Twitter spirit and the Instagram spirit and the Facebook spirit and see what they have to say to us, and then we go to our work and we drive to work and we get there and we look and we see what the MacBook spirit has to say for the day, and then we sit beside the annoying coworker spirit who tells us all about their problems, and then the boss spirit is going, why aren't you guys working? And then you, you go through the day like that, wondering, oh boy, maybe I'm in trouble. You get in your car, you drive home, you accidentally cut somebody off, and then you see the middle finger spirit come out to say hi to you, and then as you keep driving, you get home and you tell your wife about your day, but... Man, the, the spouse spirit isn't very compassionate, and then you go watch the Netflix spirit, and then you lay down in bed, and you click off the light, and you go, Holy Spirit, where were you? <laughs> you spend so much time with the distractions of the world that we aren't allowing him to speak into our lives. We can shut him out. So what do we do? Read your Bible, pray. Read your Bible, pray. Meet with your community group. Talk about, your, talk about the scriptures with some Christian friends. Pray, read the Bible. Continually repent and believe. Remind yourself of the truths and the promises that God has laid out in here. The, the promise that he will never leave you, forsake you. That his presence is with you. Remind yourselves of these things. Spend time in his presence. And when you do that, he will straighten out your priorities and he will lead you to obey. And he will remind you of a glorious peace that awaits us as his people. So point three is a future glorious peace. Starting in chapter two, verse one, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? See, this first temple that was built by King Solomon many years earlier was glorious, and it stood on the top of the mount uh the temple mount in jerusalem so it stood above even the whole city so if you were coming to visit it which at that point many people came and to see other kings other leaders came from all over the world to see king solomon and this kingdom 
And as you would be approaching it, you would see the city on a hill with this temple above it that was glorious and shining. And so this was the glory of the old temple. And so yeah, it was amazing. And you look at this abandoned rubble of a foundation now. Yeah, this one's pretty weak. No comparison. Continuing on, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, who again is the descendant of King David, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the descendant of Aaron, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. This is an incredibly powerful statement for the people at that time. Something that, again, can get lost on us because of our time in history, being so far removed from that. But if you put yourselves again in the ancient Israelites' shoes for a few minutes, God is addressing you and he's naming your leaders again. Yes, the living blood of King David, the living blood of Aaron, who was with Moses in the Exodus coming out of Egypt. And what does God say to them? Or to you, Israelites, I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And at this time, when he, he talks about being in the seventh month, this was the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the exact feast that they would use to remember their wandering in the wilderness when they had tents when God dwelt in a tent with them, when he provided manna for them and quail for them. And so they've just come out of remembering all that with this feast, and God comes to them with this word through Haggai and says, my spirit is still in your midst. You have nothing to fear. God's reassuring them, my spirit is with you. And at that time, that Haggai is prophesying this at the end of this Feast of Tabernacles. They're remembering those 40 years in the wilderness and how he was with them and how amazing that would have been for their ancestors. And then they're like, wow, he's with us like that now? This Yahweh who led them out of Egypt and split the Red Sea? This Yahweh who met Moses on the top of Mount Sinai and gave him the Ten Commandments? This Yahweh who knocked down the walls of Jericho? This is the same God that's with us. Why are we fearing? And God's giving them this encouragement, saying, guys, I've done this before. I'll do it again. And you think that's good? There's more. Continuing, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. God's saying, not only am I with you, but I'm going to bring the gold and the silver to get this place finished. And it was finished five years later. In verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Greater than the former. And in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. So here's the thing with that last part. The second temple never really matched up. 
So what does God mean when he says the glory of this place is going to fill? Because this has to be true if God's saying it, right? Because back in Temple Judaism, they were still constantly ruled by other kingdoms. You had the Persians who were, who were there, and then you had the Greeks come in, and then the Seleucids came in, and then the Romans came in. All the way up until after Jesus' time. So what was, what's the deal? Where's the glory? Where's that peace that he promised? Well, it did come with Jesus. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, the glory of that second temple became greater than the former because God in the flesh was here with them, dwelling person to person, face to face, healing disease after disease, teaching them directly. God in the flesh, in their presence, where usually only one person, one, one time per year, could go into the Holy of Holy to be in God's presence. But no. Jesus is here in the whole city with everybody in the temple courts coming to them. And even in the temple courts at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles at one point during his own life where he stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is from John 7. Jesus, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, just like, just like Haggai is prophesying here at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus was dwelling with them and saying, come to me. I have rivers of living water that will flow unending from you. And when Jesus cruci was crucified and cried out, it is finished from the cross, that peace between God and man came fully because in the, in the temple, that curtain that was dividing the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was split in two from top to bottom, saying that the way to God is no longer through the temple system, no longer through the sacrificial system. The sacrifice has been made. The final sacrifice is done. Peace with God is now through Jesus. Peace with God is now through Jesus. So guys, whatever's going on in your lives, I know there's going to be days where you feel like God isn't with you. But our feelings betray us, right? We have to stand on the promises of God and on His Word. God has poured out His Spirit into your hearts individually, and you need to Bring the gifts that he's given you and build up the body of Christ with that. Spend time with your fellow believers. The living waters of Christ are yours. He has forgiven you of your sins. He has regenerated you by his Holy Spirit. He convicts you of your sin. He leads you into paths of righteousness for his namesake, for his kingdom, not for our own. And remember that as he promised the Jews back then that they would have a greater glory in the future, he's promised us that as well. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the glorious future that we as believers in Christ have ahead of us. So on those days when you're tempted to be distracted by all those things, think about that future day and what you're striving for. Persevere through the temptation. Persevere through the struggles and through the pain and through the sorrow because you know that there is this day coming when all of those things will be wiped away and there will be joy and peace and a new creation for you to enjoy with Christ forever. So friends, consider your ways. Live for Christ and look to that future. Pray with me.